Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick, and this is the solo episode for February 17th of 2022. I really hope that you enjoyed my interview with Tomas and Benz of Sion. Sion has been the sponsor of this podcast for the last six weeks and will actually be moving to a new sponsor next week. But I really wanted to thank them for being the first sponsor of 2022, and I really enjoyed talking with them. I hope you enjoyed learning from them as well. We talked a lot about their approach to fighting fraud through their fraud fighting technology. We talked about current cybercrime trends, geographic-specific consumer and fraud trends, which I found very interesting, especially I just feel like there's a huge gap in knowledge around consumer trends or consumer behavior in other countries. I guess I'm talking specifically from a U.S. perspective to other geographies, mostly because U.S. is just so rife with fraud for so many different reasons. I've talked about that on a previous episode about some of the reasons why the U.S. and EU and APAC and other and LAAM all have very different amounts of fraud and, and why. But I think what's really important is to understand, well, what does a good customer look like so that you can identify the outlier? If everything looks, if you're a hammer, as they say, everything looks like a nail. And what I mean by that comparison is if you're in the U.S. and you're used to U.S. behavior of consumers as well as what U.S. behavior of fraud looks like, then everything outside of the U.S. may look risky or bad when it's really not. So uh, I really enjoyed that conversation with Tomas and Benson, wanted to make sure that I called it out. So if you have not had a chance to listen to Tuesday's interview, I highly recommend it. So today I was trying to think about what to talk about. Sometimes there's too much to talk about, and sometimes I'm just not sure what you guys want to learn currently. But there's been some interesting conversations on LinkedIn. There's been some really interesting fraud-related TV shows and documentaries recently that have brought up some issues. So I'm going to dive into those recent fraud-related TV shows and documentaries. How we refer to criminals and if it's productive. This is a conversation that came it's actually connected to all that you'll you'll hear how in a few minutes and then speaking of scams i'll highlight a couple that are impacting online businesses fintechs and banks and how they've been really challenging to get under control they're consumer focused scams and so that makes it a hundred times harder for businesses to try to protect their consumers uh, when it's outside of the business's control. So those are all topics that have been discussed often in my world, both on LinkedIn and in real life. And so I thought that those would be of interest to you guys today. So let's talk about some recent fraud-related TV shows. I am currently kind of obsessed with this new TV show by Shonda Rhimes, who is a very popular TV producer here in the U.S., 
Some of her previous works include Grey's Anatomy, Scandal, Bridgerton. She did a deal with Netflix a few years ago, and so this TV show came out of that. And it's called Inventing Anna, and it's the story of Anna Sorokin, who actually went by Anna Delvey for several years. And maybe you've heard of her as the Soho grifter or the German heiress. She was in New York and participated in several scams, one towards hotels, staying in these very luxury hotels and having this appearance of someone who had opulent wealth and then at some point someone would realize wait we don't have a good credit card on file for her and was interesting she did that to about six or seven hotels i think in the new york area as well as one very interesting story in morocco and then also during those hotel stays she was also working her way through the new york elite these aren't people whose names we recognize these are like richer than people we recognize the people who enjoy anonymity but are very very wealthy and uh, oftentimes it's due to generational wealth and she kind of infiltrated that world and played off of people to be able to try to build a business try to build a, a startup in a way but she wanted to get bank financing rather than having investors and she the way that she tried to get that financing was through saying that her father was wealthy and, and she came from a lot of money in Germany. I don't want to give too much of the story away, but that's what's known. I'll be honest, I listened to a podcast about this story a couple of years ago and I kind of thought, eh. But like with most things, when put through a TV production studio, especially one that's really good at storytelling, it was fascinating. And I found a lot of different parallels between that type of fraud and what we see online for fintechs and e-commerce, and just the overall anatomy of someone who commits fraud and scams, as social engineering, as well as just the premeditation and calculation of it all, and kind of the delusion of it all as well. I think that at a certain point, and, and that's really where the word con man or con woman comes from, is confidence. And how do you get confidence? By believing in yourself and believing in your story. So I found it very fascinating. I really think that everyone would be interested in it. I will warn you, it is nine one-hour episodes. Actually, I think the last episode is a little over an hour. So, <laughs> And I binged it in a day and a half. So you might want to start it on a weekend. I couldn't stop watching it. I, it's probably because this is my world. But I've heard from a few other people who aren't in fraud who really enjoyed it as well. It just came out on Netflix. Here in the U.S., I know that some people in the U.K. are able to see it. I don't know how available it is internationally, but and nor would I ever encourage you to use a VPN to do that because obviously we have challenges with VPN sometimes in e-commerce. But wanted to mention that one. The other one that I've been hearing a lot about is the Tinder Swindler, also on Netflix. I'll be honest, I watched it for about five minutes and just wasn't in the mood for a documentary. And, and this was actually on a different day than when I watched Inventing Anna. But I, I it was a really, it'd been a really long day of work and just a ton of Zoom calls. And I think I just wasn't ready to really follow a documentary. But I have heard from so many people in our industry who really appreciated it and enjoyed it. And I think all of them have mentioned to me that it has a very shocking ending. So that one is something that will be on my watch list in the next week or two. Another one that I watched a while ago, but that I think is worth 
checking out is Generation Hustle, and that's on HBO Max. I watched, I haven't watched all the episodes, but I watched episode 10, and this one especially, I think, would be of interest to a lot of people that listen to this podcast. If you're not familiar with this subculture of scam rap, it's weird. I, I don't totally understand it, but I do know that this is the majority of U.S. fraudsters, what they're participating in. Different types of selling methods and training courses and just all these fraud as a service things. And episode 10 follows this guy who is a rapper. He raps about scams and raps sauce, as they call it, which I believe stands for secret sauce. But basically, he's rapping methods of exactly how to target specific companies in them. It's not good rap. I grew up in the 90s, so that's what I consider good rap. <laughs> but, and I live in the town of Sir Mix-a-Lot and Macklemore and, and others. So that's for reference. Maybe you'll find scam rap interesting. It doesn't rhyme. It doesn't have much of a beat. But this guy was selling out concert hall. Well, not concert halls, but like pretty good sized clubs. People were reciting his music. And then on top of that, they're learning the methods and they're doing them throughout. And there's some controversy online about whether this guy was for real or not. I, I don't know. I could be swayed either way. But I do think it's interesting to learn about some of the fraud tactics and culture out there. It's definitely changing. And sometimes I feel like just sitting here in my office talking into a microphone and consulting with some great companies that I work with. But I just I don't know if I feel like I am helping as much as I could with just how huge fraud is these days. It's just and it's everywhere. There's so many facets and angles of it. And there's the business side. There's the consumer side. There's the all the other things that sometimes it can just be overwhelming. I think we're all in the same boat. <laughs> so I was just going to say you're in good company if you feel similarly, but I think that it's something that we all are committed to. So we'll do the best we can. And often people just say, well, it's good job security. And it is. But at the same time, I, I'd be okay with giving up job security if it meant there wasn't fraud out there or scams. But at the same time, I don't think we're going to have to find out, unfortunately. Another mention I was just going to say, and this is a book I plan to read soon. I've heard the author on a couple podcasts and she's really fascinating. And this is a little bit different than payment fraud and all that, but it's called Hype. And then the subtitle is How Scammers, Grifters, and Con Artists Are Taking Over the Internet and Why We're Following. I know that she talks a lot about social media scammers and just these big personalities online that aren't consistent with who they really are and just all of that. But it it sounds like she really deep dives into why this is happening and just how social media plays such a key part in the popularity as well as the number of victims going up. It's just it's a it's a two part way. But I also find it fascinating to kind of learn more about why the general population is interested in these. I mean, we all like a good story, that's for sure. But it feels like this is fairly new-ish with Fire Festival documentaries and others a few years ago. I think that's when it started, but I could be wrong and could be corrected pretty easily. <laughs> so some of these TV shows, movies, documentaries, etc. kind of leads to a bigger conversation around sensationalizing scammers and criminals. And I posted about it on LinkedIn and it's created quite an interesting conversation. So I thought I'd read what I wrote and then read a few of the comments and 
I would love to hear what you guys think after you hear them. So I started out saying, do we as a society need to be more deliberate in how we talk about those who commit fraud? I was talking with Gary Billingham last week in preparation for a future Fraudology podcast episode, so you can look forward to that, and have thought about something he said a few times since. The impact of fraud on businesses and consumers can be crippling, and we've seen it explode in the past two years. Yet, we often give the criminals names like the Tinder Swindler, Dirty John, Fraudster, etc. His point was we should call them what they are, liars and thieves, because no one likes a liar or a thief. And in our American criminal justice system, the penalties for stealing millions can sometimes be less than a low-level drug offense. And that's if they're caught and prosecuted. And believe me, street gangs and mafias have caught onto this, with many moving from illegal drug sales to credit card fraud and money laundering. How can we say these are serious offenses while not taking them seriously? Based on my post yesterday about the newest fraud-focused shows on Netflix, I enjoy these stories too, so I'm part of the problem. Though I see them as educational and hope it will make people think twice when someone or something sounds good, too good to be true. But I'm curious, do you think if we only called those who commit fraud liars and thieves that they would start a start to consumers, businesses, and governments taking them more seriously? Or is it more impactful to dress them up as fun and interesting stories and sometimes we have to provide a creative title to get attention? Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Share your thoughts below. I have had several comments, so I will, I'm going to read a few of them. The first one was, I really dislike the term fraudsters. I think the more we call someone who commits crime a criminal instead of a softer name, we decrease the impact. Someone else commented on that. Completely agree. We call them cyber criminals, not online fraudsters, straight up. And I replied with, I agree with you both, although I'm guilty of using the term, <laughs> uh, the term fraudster. 
It's similar to how I hate the term friendly fraud, but I use it. Otherwise, people don't understand what or who I'm talking about when I say first party fraud or cyber criminals. Often the term cyber criminal is co-opted by cybersecurity industry. So I kind of use them interchangeably, but I do use fraudster a lot because that's just kind of what's been adopted by the industry. So just trying to use similar terms, but it's not my favorite. Another person said, I think the term criminal is most appropriate. Cyber criminal, though, sometimes feels like people may take it less seriously, even though it's still a crime. I alternate between the two, depending on the audience. Another person said, I was having a LinkedIn conversation on a similar subject only recently. That was about how we refer to the crime types, generic cybercrime, scams, etc. We absolutely minimize the crimes with the way we regard them. I get that the language should not instill the same disgust as some crimes, but we do generically trivialize. If anybody were to read the impact statement of a victim of romance fraud, for example, they would get an insight into the devastation caused when a criminal destroys a person from within. And that is in addition to taking their money. Okay, couple more. Generally, I like the fact that fraud finds itself more mainstream in the media, more often than not with a blend of entertainment and awareness objectives. Where I get uncomfortable is when fraudsters are portrayed as intellectually admirable or bold and brave. Fraudsters take the least risky route to criminal proceeds. We need to remove any respect or notoriety as the potential to negatively influence people yeah, to become involved themselves. Regardless of typology and method, fraudsters are liars. That's the truth, which I'd like to see portrayed more often in order to strip any respect to their chosen route of success. And last comment I'm going to read. Agreed. The fancy names detract from the impact of these crimes and criminals. I deal with the victims of these frauds and scams in my job. Trying to convince someone that what's happened is a crime can be really hard. The amount of people who have been led to believe this is a victimless crime and that they can't lose money as the banks or credit card companies have to refund any losses. It's the law. And that was in quotation marks. Amazes me every time I get told this. So I don't know. It's I, I thought it was an interesting discussion. I kind of shared my thoughts. I, I'm more just fascinated to hear what other people say. I, I do think that obviously we can get hung up on terms and that that just isn't the same as trying to talk about identifying factors and, and other things that could be more productive. But I do think it's worth a conversation as more people outside of our industry are learning and watching TV shows and others about different aspects of our industry. Is it up to us to try to hold the line on the terms? I, I don't know. I'm just asking the question, but I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts. As was mentioned in one of the comments, one positive of TV shows and documentaries on scams and scammers is that it can lead to education of the larger population of consumers, and it's desperately needed. But I also think that there are several aspects of fraud and scams that I would love to see TV shows and documentaries demonstrate and show the impact. I mean, one person in those comments referenced romance scams. I don't think that there's been enough on that. I know there's Dirty John. I know there's other things, but that's more of an in-person thing. What about the just thousands or tens of thousands or maybe it's millions? I don't know, but it's probably hundreds of thousands of people who get scammed online all the time with romance. And to the person who made the comments point, it can be devastating from within because not only 
are you most likely out a lot of money? You're also out your feelings and just your trust and and all of that. And there's so many other parts of scams that I wish would be covered, but don't seem to be as of interest to consumers in an educational format anyway. One example beyond romance scams and others, and then and this is really around something that impacts businesses, but is targeting consumers, is something that we had a conversation on my most recent retailer call about one of the large retailers, you know, and all of them have pretty big brands, brought up these gift card scams. And basically what happens is a consumer, often elderly, receives a call from someone portraying to be from a tax authority like the IRS in the U.S. or I know there's others internationally, or sometimes they say that they're like the grandson or something like that. But other times, a lot of times it's big entities where a large fee or fine is due. And the only way that fee or fine can be paid is through gift cards to large brand retailers. And oftentimes to those of us who know better, we're like, what? why would they think that? Why would they ever think that? But remember, social engineers are very well trained to very quickly assess on the phone if they should put some pressure like fear and say, well, we're going to have the cop show up at your house or we're going to police arrest you or you're going to be going to jail if you don't do this or if they're going to go the route of becoming their best friend and maybe they're lonely and, and hear about their lives and just all of that build trust. But a lot of these are around, you know, that fear piece. And once someone's under a trance or a spell from a social engineer, it can be very difficult to get through to them. And this has been a topic of discussion on this specific retailer call for off and on for the last two years. And it's been an issue off and on for the last several years. And it seems like every time retailers put something in place to try to educate their consumers, the scammers work around it. So one example is that a lot of retailers have placed signs next to gift cards. So if it's in a grocery store that has a large kiosk of several different closed loop brand gift cards, it may have a big scam warning sign on it. Now, granted, one time when I was in a pharmacy, I saw one of those signs and it was literally like seven feet high. I'm almost six feet tall and I had to look up to read it. So a little old lady is not going to be able to read that. But also it's small print. It's red. Like, and even if people read it, they're not going to think it's about them, even if it is. Additionally, at least one of the retailers on this call said that they've invested a lot of money in educating their frontline staff, educating their cashiers and their sales associates on anytime someone's ordering or buying a gift card in person, there's a prompt on the POS terminal. Do you know the person you're purchasing this with? And then the sales associate will ask, hey, like, who's this gift card for? Just in a very friendly way. But the thing is, is that every time merchants have put any of these stops in place, the social engineer is coaching that person to ignore them. So they've already gotten a head start. They've gotten to that consumer before anyone in your in your company could. And just think of it as they're under a spell. So they're told, Oh, you might see a sign or they might tell you that this could be a scam. And it's so sad. But there are people who take advantage of other people by asking them to buy gift cards for them. But that's not this. This is completely legitimate. So just disregard any of that. This is important. 
Other times, I mean, there's been a few examples of the scammer actually accompanying them or being right outside the store. That's mostly in New York City that I've heard from a couple of retailers, one specifically, but uh, primarily they're on the phone or they're on the phone with them while they're in the store so that they can't really be portrayed because even if somebody on the earth, they can't really be swayed to think about it and be out of the situation. And often what happens is hours or days after those gift cards have been purchased and after the gift card numbers have been read to the fraudster and here I go using the term fraudster, I know, <laughs> to the criminal. It's just part of my vernacular now, guys. I don't know. I'm going to have to figure that out. But so once they've read those numbers to the criminal, the criminal is going to go either switch those to multiple gift cards quickly to try to put some distance between the original gift card number and the final one, or they're going to have people on the ground to spend those gift cards very quickly. They'll often put the number into an app that will transition it into a barcode. There's just, there's all kinds of, things. I mean, I could go into so much more detail, but essentially this is very challenging. And at the end of the day, because these transactions are happening in store, most of the time, the financial liability is not with the merchant. That doesn't mean that the merchant doesn't want to make it right. That doesn't mean that the merchant won't try to help if there's any funds left over on those original gift card numbers by the time the consumer realizes what happened. Every retailer I know of will return that money to them. But again, it's all about speed. And so oftentimes, once you've read that number to the person on the other end of the phone, it's being spent within 20 minutes to half an hour max. It depends on the store, but oftentimes it's resellable items that are well-known brands or in-demand electronics or other things like that. And so although the financial liability is on the consumer, there's still a big exposure to the brand, not just from a financial perspective. I mean, when this first started, a lot of retailers were providing refunds on this just out of pity or empathy, but it's not sustainable. It, it's millions of dollars that they just can't return, especially when they have an e-commerce business where they do take 100% of liability. So that has become a challenge. But the bigger issue is the brand issue. When somebody gets scammed, and I've said this before on the podcast, when someone has their credit card stolen or when someone has been scammed using a specific retailer or a specific merchant, when they're telling that story, they're using that brand. My card was used at X. I got had for so many dollars at Y store. And they're telling a lot of people. And so it really is a brand issue. It's a trust issue. And I never think that enough importance is put on brand and just how much fraud in general can impact that. So I'm always going to emphasize that when I can. Uh, they're also analyzing data on the back end. They're, they have a high customer service call volume. Several retailers have a specialty escalation process for these type of calls. My heart goes out to the people that have to talk to the victims all the time. That was always hard for me when I worked on the merchant side, but I couldn't imagine having to tell someone you fell for a scam. That's a really humiliating feeling. So it's something that 
as we were talking about this with the retailers, a lot of them feel, and, and I agree with them, that the answer is to educate consumers on this. The IRS, any other tax entity, uh, Social Security, anything like that, any national organization is not going to ever accept gift cards as a form of payment. That is a no-brainer to you and I, but that is something that when someone's on the phone and you're worried you owe somebody something, you're just not thinking about it. And I do hope that as there does become more information and education and just more light shined on these kinds of things, that we will stop blaming victims because that's why people don't come forward. That's why the fraud numbers that of impacting consumers are never actually accurate. Because oftentimes, 75% of scam victims won't report it. It depends on the scam. It depends on a lot of things. But that is a number that I've heard in my head before. Maybe it's in the 60%, but it's large. It's over 50% of consumers who have been scammed won't report it to IC3 or whatever national organization it is in their country. So it's something that Retailers were saying, one of them said, if all of our marketing departments just put in some money, we could probably afford an ad for the Super Bowl. The problem is a lot of marketing departments don't want to have their brand synonymous with fraud. I understand that. But at the same time, I could make a really strong case for how much brand trust you would get back by saying, hey, we could be selling you something. We could be telling you about our big sale on mattresses or shoes or luggage or electronics or whatever. But instead, we're going to take this 30 seconds to help educate you so you don't get scammed and so you can save your money. I can make a pretty big argument that that would be huge for that brand. And because it would be so novel, it would probably get picked up and shared everywhere. Just free advice to your marketing department. I'm sure they wouldn't take it, but... <laughs> Obviously, my opinion is jaded and often, well, I mean, definitely in this case, it is clouded by my passion for helping educate people on fraud. So I understand that that may not be something that a marketing department would agree with me on, but it's something that I would love to see. And I would definitely share it on social media for what it's worth. <laughs> Similarly, for banks, authorized push payments are impacting them and so challenging to identify when the consumer authorizes it. So essentially what that means is any kind of payment out from a bank account, it could be using a P2P financial service like Zelle or money wires, money transfers, Venmo, Cash App, etc. Those are a little bit different, but just all of the, but primarily from banks. It's when a customer is authorizing the payment because they've been scammed. They've been called and they're told that they owe 5,000 euros or $5,000 to X. They need to pay it right now or there's going to be significant consequences. And they go into their bank account and send off that transfer. They're doing the authentication. If there's any kind of two-factor authentication, it's coming from their device. It's coming from their account. They, If they have behavioral biometrics, they're seeing how the password was entered, how it was typed. It was typed by the person. I mean, banks put millions of dollars into protecting their customers, but they can't protect them when they're doing it willingly. They're really trying hard to be able to identify these, but there just aren't the same indicators as when an account is hijacked or taken over or there's an unauthorized push payment. And so 
I think both of these things are related where really the biggest answer is in educating consumers. And I would love to see it educational content on this and wiser free security education is doing an amazing job at you know providing these cute short clips on tiktok and others some are illustrated with cartoons others are actually reenacted by actors they're real stories but played by actors they're interesting and i hope that that's helping educate consumers but it is an uphill battle because most of them aren't interested they think this won't happen to me. It's boring. I don't have time for this, et cetera. I know for me, when people in my personal life ask, what can I do to protect myself against fraud? And I give them kind of my top three, which are monitor your credit reports, freeze your credit report, monitor your credit cards, and don't use the same password for everything online. Don't even use the same password for more than one account on anything online. And they kind of look at me like, well, that's boring or that's going to take too long or that's stupid. But so it's it's a challenge, right, to get people to care. So maybe that's why some of these TV shows and movies and documentaries are important. But I'd love to see them cover these other things. I'd love to see them cover the gift card fraud. I'd love to see them cover these authorized push payments and trying to get some education out there. Also, free advice. I mean, I do provide consulting to a very select number of solution providers in how to understand the e-commerce market. One thing I would say, free advice to solution providers, if you really want to get on prospects good side, you could put a portion of your marketing budget towards educating consumers that on scams that are impacting uh, your prospective market of merchants. Just saying, like, for instance, if you really want to work with big retailers, you could contribute something to an advertisement or a social media campaign or others to, hey, did you know like this can happen or making it kind of snazzy and then let the retailers know they might appreciate it. There's just an idea for you. <laughs> so with that, I think I gave you a lot to think about primarily just around all the buzz and sexiness, for lack of a better term, on fraud stories. I don't think that that is ending anytime soon. There's another story that happened just over this past weekend with a married couple that was a part of the bit by finance i think it was or by hack several years ago they well they're saying they weren't part of the hack but that they somehow had over a thousand bitcoin which went from a few million dollars to well over a billion dollars in value in the last several years since 2016 when the hack happened and the wife of this husband and wife couple is quite an interesting character. She was an on a female entrepreneur that wrote guest articles for Forbes and Inc. and others and was asked to speak at events as this female empowerment CEO. And then she had this alter ego where she's a rapper, not a good rapper. Again, I maybe I'm just a really harsh rap critic, but this is really bad. I don't recommend I mean... You certainly can try as she called herself the crocodile of Wall Street. She had another name too, but I can't remember what her rap name was off the top of my head. Oh, it was Razzle Khan. R-A-Z-Z-L-E-C or sorry, R-A-Z-Z-L-E-K-H-A-N. Yeah, so they had $3.6 billion in Bitcoin laundering. And uh, she had her own rap videos and very interesting alter ego. 
And the one of the reasons why I mentioned that is because over the weekend, Netflix bought the right to her story. <laughs> so as I said, this is not the end. And I'm here for it, but I also hope that there is some eye for education and having it be productive and that they aren't just talking about social engineering and, and cons, but also some of these other types of scams and schemes that really are impacting people and not enough are talking about it because the only disinfectant is sunlight. And so bringing more attention on these is going to help educate consumers. We have to educate them before the social engineer gets to them. So we plant the seed of doubt already. But it is an uphill battle. It is a bigger hill to climb. And I know I can hear my husband saying, don't take on another, <laughs> another passion project. So I am passing it off to you all to think about. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach me on LinkedIn or at Carice at chargelyticsconsulting.com. And I will talk to you next week. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.